Good morning, Ed. It's good to be with you this morning. I couldn't help but smile to myself as I was uh, listening to Mark make the men's ministry announcement. In a uh, different life, my wife and I served for seven years uh, doing campus ministry in the Ivy Leagues, and I was thinking about a men's ministry that uh, they, one of the guys ran at Yale. Uh, you know, if you're trying to bring college students into the mix, maybe we could talk to Ben about doing something like this. Every, uh, every fall at Yale, they would have a men's retreat for student men, and it was titled the Meat Retreat. The, uh, the cost of the retreat was covered for lodging purposes, and the guys were only to bring their favorite meat, no utensils, <laughs> right? So all they ate for the weekend was meat, barehanded. It was really a manly men's retreat. So maybe talk with the guys about, you know, how, how you could get to something like that as a you know, way to open some of the doors. Well, let me... Um, if you would turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 95. Now, I'll be reading out of uh, Equipped this morning. I tend to read in the NIV, the newly inspired version. Many of you are reading in your Pew Bibles, which is the extra special version, the ESV. Uh, they all come from the same manuscripts and, the, and communicate the same idea, though with a little bit different word choice. Uh, hear the word of the Lord out of Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. For He is our God and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. But today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me. Though they had seen what I did, for forty years I was angry with that generation. And I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. And so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we are a people who you have called by your name, a people gathered, a people who are ever, ever in deep need of you, and who rarely appreciate the scope of that great need. And so we are thankful to you for your mercy that you continue to come for us, to call us to come. It is my prayer this morning that you will renovate our hearts, reorient our thinking, re-energize our living before you and for your sake and your glory. Father, I am aware of many of my own failings and not even beginning to touch the scope were I to measure the charges you could bring against me. Yet I thank you for your mercy and pray, Father, let not my weaknesses, my own sinful shortcomings, hinder what you would do in the declaration of your word to your people this morning. Grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, and faith to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is an interesting psalm. We believe it was written, most of the scholarship around it believe it was written as a worship song. Uh, for the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, if you will. You can think of a tabernacle or booth as a really bad tent in modern language. 
It was a simple handmade shelter in which the Israelites would um, hide, if you will, from the day or the night. They didn't have much to make shelter from as they wandered in the desert. It was a play at a time, though, where they celebrated how God met them anyway. They celebrated his provision of the manna, his nearness in the cloud by day, his presence in the fire by night. They celebrated the greatness of their God. And yet, if we also look at this psalm and we think of it as a worship psalm, it's not very American. It starts with high notes, reminds us of the greatness of God, and then it doesn't end very well. It ends with a, if you will, a charge, an exhortation, perhaps even a dire warning from the mouth of God to his people, hey, you better take this seriously. Now, when we think about worship, it's a funny word. It is a word that is almost meaningless today, the way we use it. We can think of worship, and many of us immediately think about music. And we might think, oh, that was too slow. Some of us may go, well, somewhere deep inside, though I won't say it out loud, you had a drum in the worship service. That could be sin. You know, others of us think, oh, if only we could have an a, uh, organ and grind some hymns, that would be the way to go. So we think about worship that way. Some of us think worship is what we do when we sing, but it's not what we do when we open the Word together. Some of us think, can we stop the music now? I don't really care for it. Just teach me something. So it's a fuzzy word. For our purposes this morning, and I really believe for the heart of the psalmist, we need to think a little bit differently, though, than how we are colloquially using the word worship. Worship we might better refer to that to which we cling for life and meaning, or that to which we cling in a way that drives our lives as though it were God. That to which we cling that believing it will keep us safe and provide security in our lives. In other words, what is at the heart of who we are? Now that's a hard question. You know, I'm a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. I actually have two master's degrees from a good Reformed seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary. I have 168 semester hours of graduate work done. If you know somewhere I can get a mail-order PhD, I'm available afterwards. We can talk about that. I have all the right answers, theoretically speaking. I have taken the beatings of presbyteries to arrive at ordination. So, isn't it about having the right answers? No, it is not. It is about the God who we worship. It is not about getting it right. It is about the one who is right and who by faith will declare you right in Jesus Christ. You see, sometimes we can ask what we worship this way. See, I can write my right answers down but we could interrogate my children, let's say. I have two kids. My daughter is 17. She's a senior in high school. My son is 14, and he is a freshman. If we interrogate my family and we ask them a series of questions, what's most important to your dad? Somewhere on the list, I think God would appear. But, you know, if you ask them, when does dad get most reactive, angry, afraid, fearful? When does he react to your mom? Oh, now we might be getting closer to his heart of hearts. You see what I'm saying? I can say the right answers. I can answer a presbytery's questions. I can teach a passage. Once upon a time, because of the seminary I went from, some of you may know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I had to pass a written on it with only two errors on the entire thing, an error being A instead of the, right? But that won't get me anywhere in terms of what really matters and to what my heart really claims. 
In this psalm, you and I are challenged to wrestle with what do we worship. And I want to invite you to hold that in the backdrop of your mind as we walk across Psalm 95 together. My structure this morning is really simple. I'm going to address three ideas. That worship is to be responsive. That worship drives repentance. And worship defines life. Worship is to be responsive. Worship drives repentance, and worship defines life. Now, to get there in the first part, worship is response. Pick up a Bible, if you will. If you don't have one, open it up. I'm going to walk across this psalm with you. We'll start again in verse 1. We hear the word. It's an imperative, a commandment. Come. So we might ask this in response. Three questions that we'll answer here. How shall we come? Where shall we come? And to whom shall we come responsively? Well, the commandment starts, come. Well, how are we to do that? There's a series of words here that are loaded with intensity in the Hebrew grammar. First, the imperative. It is a commandment. Come to worship Almighty God. It's not a suggestion. It's not a negotiation. It's not a Western, Western world American vote. I don't like that one. I don't think I'll go there. It is an imperative. But then it adds some ideas here that are fuzzy or funny to us. Let us, again, it's imperatival in its nature, sing for joy. Isn't that a funny commandment? Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 says, be joyful always. What the heck is that? Be joyful. I'm commanding you. I'm telling you. Now, Christians are wont to do it this way. The Bible says be joyful, so I'll smile a lot. I'm joyful. The number one thing in the research world of demographics that non-Christians say of Christians and of the Christian church today is that we're hypocrites. Hmm, I wonder why. Be joyful. It's right up there when you're struggling with terror and loss and hurt and your best friend comes to you and says, have you read that verse in Philippians, don't be anxious, you should stop it. Oh, right, I'm sorry, I forgot that. I'll quit that right now. So we, we take a truth and we kind of halfway understand it and apply it sideways and bind our hearts and our souls in a way that the Scriptures aren't teaching. Here, though, we read these words, Come, howl, come, let us sing for joy. So we're going to sing. And then he makes an interesting remark here. He says, Let us shout aloud to the God of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving, extol Him with music and song. Let's take that apart for a moment together. This idea of shout is a funny word. Do you know what it, the Hebrew word would, doesn't translate real cleanly? You know, we like to go word, word when we translate. It really means raise a noise. Here's some ways in which it's used in the Bible. When the people of Israel realized that were there when David brought the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God back into Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem spontaneously burst out with loud, triumphant noise. The presence of God is here with us. It's used in a different way. At the end of a battle, there's victory over the enemy and they are vanquished and they flee and the conquering soldiers stand and they shout out a great noise. It's used in the, in the blowing of the shofar, the great ram's horn. In other words, there's nothing terribly quiet about it. It is an idea that we are being communicated here that how are we to come? We are to come with release of ourselves, focused in awe that Almighty God, Maker of heaven and earth, has invited us into His very presence. The root idea 
is it's of worship, is it's not about how comfortable I am, but the offering of all that I am to the one who made the heavens and the earth and who knows your name and who knows mine. Now we might ask, with this, another idea is embedded in the text. It says, let us come with thanksgiving. It's a hard word again. We need several English words to get it out. It's an idea of thanksgiving and confession woven together that's being communicated. Earlier in the service, uh, Camper, uh, Pastor Mundy led us in confession. Most of the time in the Christian church, we think of confession as, let me tell you my sin. I agree with you, God, that this is wicked or wrong or awful. Forgive my unbelief. But here it's used in in an opposite connotation. It is the idea that we are to speak with an energized thanksgiving to God, a confession to Him of who He is. Look at the model of the passage. Here's what we have already read in just two little verses. Sing to the Lord. It's His covenant name, all in caps. The One whoever is, whoever was, and whoever will be. The present God. The omnipotent One. The unchanging God. We are to shout aloud to whom? The rock. Our God is an unchanging God. Come before Him how? Confessing with great thanks that this is who He is. And in His majesty and in His might, you and I find shelter at any moment of turmoil, no matter the storm. God is an unmoving rock. And then we read, extol Him with music. So how are we to come? We are not to come with great high reverence. I'm going to use that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Many of you may uh, have watched Star Trek in your life. Do I have any friends who are aware of that great program? You know, remember Mr. Spock. Some have argued that Spock may have been the first Reformed theologian. We shall not feel anything. Passion moderate at all times. Yes, there will be no sine curve. Spirituality is to be utterly even and cognitive in all of its ways. Not exactly what the psalmist is saying to you and to me. So you see, we need to ask the next question. If we are to come with this kind of energy, with this kind of a passion to this great God, well, where do we do that? Now this is a careful thing for a moment. I'm not about to argue against in any way, shape, or form the place of the local church, but we have to pause for a minute in this passage and say, what is the church? We are sitting in a building... Go with me for a moment. This is Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church's building. The building is not the church. You and I, all who profess the name of Jesus Christ, we are the church. Now why is that important? Because when we read the text, where do we come? We're not coming to a building. Look at your Bible. Let us come before Him. The Hebrew idea is this. We come with a passionate energy into His presence as the church, the gathered people of God. doesn't matter if there's a building here or not. vast majority of churches on the planet are buildingless. It is a gathered people coming before the face of Almighty who says, I know you and you are my people. And I am the one who is and always and evermore shall be. Now that's a hard idea. I woke up this morning at oh dark 30. My uh, alarm went off at 5.45 so I could get here for the early service. I live in the north end of Virginia Beach, about an hour and 10 minute drive as long as um, nobody tells HRBT to become stuck. 
So when I get up this morning, I'm thinking of the words of Johann Sebastian Bach, a quote attributed to him, which said, which goes this way, give me a bowl of coffee, cup in Old English, or I shall surely turn into a goat. You got to like that kind of language. He understood the place of coffee in a man's life. But you see, I, I need coffee in the morning. I think of coming to church, and often I think of my comfort. How many of you in this service have small children? Put your hand up. Any of you ever have conflict with small children getting out the door on the way to church? I mean, I'm a pastor. I never do anymore. That went away with my ordination. Or you can... <laughs> Some of you may think as you turn your head to the left or the right, depending on which side your spouse may be sitting or your roommate may be sitting, do you, are you related or living with someone who seems to have a different sense of time or timeliness than you do? And so irritation begins. Or you bring your children here and you want to get them dropped off finally down the hall in the nursery so I can just go get a cup of coffee and sit in the blue squishy chair. <sighs> And I hope the music will be good this morning and that the pastor will have something helpful to say to me because after all, it's about how I feel. Worship's about me. Oops. You see, worship isn't about you. We gather as a people to come into the presence of the One who made it all, including you and including me into his presence now we are begged another question if this is how we are to come and where we are to come the location of our worship is his presence then to whom shall we come what is he like look again at your bible pick up for the right now at verse three listen to the psalmist for the lord is the great god the great king above all gods in his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. Here's the picture from the psalmist. It's poetic language. The deepest place of the earth, the highest heights of the earth, everything in between. So great is your God that it fits in the palm of his hand. The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. We are to come with every ounce of who we are into the presence of the living God, the one who is the maker of all things, men and women. This is a picture of God's call to you and me and his right due as our worship. Now let's back up for a moment. How hard is that? Well, we can start in a different place in our Bible for a minute. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. In other words, love him with every thought, every word, every affection, every action. This is what the psalmist, we could say, is describing is his due. Again, I have a problem. Anybody gotten there this morning yet? No. So great is his great mercy. You see, second point, worship is repentance. Now, sometimes 
where it is helpful to stop, and let me define a wor- the word repentance, how I'm going to be using it with you here this morning. Repentance is an idea not of a, of a mechanical change. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My father, in fact, in the local liberal church I grew up in, my dad was an alcoholic, agnostic, deacon, Sunday school teacher, former Navy man. I heard Jesus' name all the time growing up. Wasn't exactly a call to worship, if you will. My mom was involved in a New Age cult, did all kinds of strange meditation with the women in the local church. So I, I knew of Jesus, so to speak, and my understanding of Jesus, he's the one who's calling me to do the right things. That's about as far as it got. And then when I became a Christian, when the Lord saved me, I was 16 years old, and I began to hear this word repentance. I was like, what the heck does that mean? Oh, and here's my understanding. I need to quit doing this, do a 180, and I need to come back over here and start doing this. Men and women, that's not, beha- that's not repentance. That's behavior modification. Repentance is a hard issue about what you and I worship, more pointedly, whom we worship. Let me illustrate it this way. If the heart of your life is represented by my pen, your life orbits or rotates around something. It derives its meaning from something. And out of that meaning, you and I make choices in our lives the way we live. The problem is not ultimately the choices that I make, it's the thing that I worship. And even though we did it a bit tongue-in-cheek a little bit ago in our culture, you and I are profoundly and powerfully taught to worship ourselves. Even as we think about what is a church, we think about it in a way often that says, it's about me, where am I comfortable, did I like the music, what was the pastor wearing, the coffee was awful on Sunday. We think about all these other things about our comfort rather than the privilege of the one who calls us into his presence who is the one who is due worship and the one whom we actually need to satisfy the longing of our souls. I can never remember if it was C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton commenting on this idea, said, our problem is not that our passions are too strong. It is that we are satisfied with so little. Our comforts. Repentance is the movement of my heart into an orbit of of Jesus. It is a movement that can be described at times in a simple way. I'll describe it in a sense of a confession. As I'm dealing with my selfishness in a given moment, I don't want to help my son or I'm irritated with my spouse. In other words, I'm going to choose. It's all about me. I'm not loving anybody right now. Everybody leave me alone. The problem of my heart is this. I'm at the center of life and I don't want to love anyone. And so I am called, I need to move my heart. And I practice that something like this, Father, forgive me, for I am trapped in me and the worship of myself again, thinking that I am an orphan and only I can take care of me. Lord, I yield again afresh my heart to You. Thank You that You love me and You forgive me and You enable me and You empower me even to love when I don't want to. A simple example. It's a heart movement that behavior follows. You can hear... John the Baptist rebuking the Pharisees in John 3. I'm on a bunny trail here on this. Identifying the same thing. When he says to them, you brood of vipers, go and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Or in Acts 21, the writer Luke quotes Paul as saying the same thing. There's a difference between repentance and the actions. The repentance is the heart movement that will drive the actions. I can't say I've got repentance, though, if there's no outcome or fruit that goes with it in some way. 
Here in this psalm, though, as I come back to it, worship is repentance. Look at the language. Pick up at verse 6 now. He says this, Come. It's that same commandment of verse 1. Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Now let's look at what just happened. We've moved from an, uh, from an energized worship, an affection, a crying out, a shouting out, great is our God, to the realization of Him whose presence we are in. And it's not a decision in this text that says, should we kneel during worship? What do you think about that as a worship style? Far from it. It's the reality that I get to be in the presence of God, and as I apprehend Him rightly, I crash to my knees. Because He is the Lord and I am not. He is good in all of His ways. I don't understand it. J.I. Packer, commenting on the wisdom of God, said this, Biblical wisdom is not an understanding of how it's all going to work out, which is what you and I typically ask God for. Rather, the certainty that He knows how it's going to work out and He will work it out for His good and glory. That is wisdom. So we pay attention to the text. When we fall in worship, it drives repentance because it reorients our living. It makes us rethink what really matters. A right apprehension of God affects us emotionally, intellectually, physically. Worship is a full-orbed animal as we come into relationship with God Almighty. We gather to be with Him. He is the one by whom and for whom it has all been made. He's the one who spoke and light came from darkness, life from nothingness. He is the one, men and women, that invites you out of your shallow and my shallow way of living to know the one we are made for. Listen to the words of Paul talking about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. By Him, for Him, all things have been created. Things in the heavens, things on the earth, visible and invisible, rulers or powers or kingdoms or authorities. Everything has been created for Him and by Him. In Jesus Christ, it is held together before all things, and in Him it all holds together. We are still discovering what holds a molecule and atom together. Someday we'll build this powerful enough electron microscope, and we're going to get down there to the very bottom of it, and it's going to say, Jesus, the One who is before all things, and in Him it is held together, Jesus Christ. And yet this is nothing compared to His real power. The real power of your God is this, that in everything He has the supremacy, that at the cross, even death was destroyed for God's glory and your sake. And He invites you to come into His presence with all that you are and to know Him for all that He is. Worship drives repentance. It reorients our way of thinking. It reorients our very fabric of our lives. It attaches us to what 
will last forever. Worship is repentance, a radical reorientation, driven not out of something you and I summon up from within, but out of a profound apprehension of who He is. The great God, the great King above all gods, maker of heaven and earth. Now, don't miss something now. Look in your Bible again. For all of that, there's something really disturbing here that I think we often miss as Americans. Read this verse again with me, verse 7. Here's the great part. For he is our God. I got that when I was 16 years old. I have a God. He's a great God. I don't like the next part of this. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now, that sounds really good, but pay attention to what he just said. When I become his, he owns me. I am his. The flock is his. The pasture is his. You aren't yours if you know Jesus anymore. You are his. Now, if that disturbs you, I might suggest to you that you need to wrestle with your, who you think God really is vis-a-vis who he's revealed himself to be. John Piper said this, the supremacy of God is the ground of our joy. The supremacy of God is the ground of our joy. When I was in college, I had a silly and kind of fun illustration of, from a guy that got this. My older brother's two years older than myself. Uh, Mike was a grad student at Ohio State, lived with a bunch of guys. Uh, Rich Pence, one of Mike's roommates, uh, re- would restore um, old VW bugs, you know, like back to new. He had just finished the restoration of like a 1965 convertible bug. It was like showroom new. And in the middle of Ohio, we get some pretty ferocious thunderstorms. Giant thunderstorm sweeps through central Ohio. Rich had finished this restoration yesterday, pulled it around, parked it in front of the house they were living in. Comes out the door in the morning, there's a tree laying on this newly restored VW bug. I don't know about you, but these, what he said would not have really been the first words out of my mouth. Rich goes, Lord, what did you do to your car? (laughs) I would go, well, not in this crowd, you know. (laughs) You see, Rich got, all I have is yours. I get the delight of restoration, but it's yours. And he was not buried by the death of a beautiful machine. Worship drives repentance. Let me close with a few ideas. Go to the end of the psalm here, and this is where we live. Today, now this is the nasty part of the psalm. Today, here and now, the writer of Hebrews quoting this psalm uses it some 1,500-ish years later and says today again, meaning the day he lives in. So we might rightly in our biblical exegesis go, this is today, here and now, you and me. So he might say to me, hey, Cron, hey, Camper, Hey, Pastor Ben, hey, whoever you are and whatever your name is, if you hear his voice, by the way, when the word is read, like it or not, you are hearing his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did his people at Meribah and at Massa in the desert. Well, what did they do? God has led them. Fire of his presence by night, clouds to shelter them by day. They can turn around and reliving memory of watch in their mind's eye, the Red Sea being parted, Pharaoh's army being decimated. They can watch manna fall from heaven and they are fed from nothing. And then they got a little thirsty. 
And the first thing out of their mouth is, hey Moses, did you bring us out here to die? Now look, listen to the language. Not, hey God, God's not our leader, Moses, you did it. So they're not even looking at the one who called them, they're right back to the human institution. And what angers God in, this, in the text is this, their unbelief. Their testing, refusal to take him at his word. Men and women, your greatest sin, my greatest sin is not, if I'm a man, the lust of my mind on a beach on a given day, an acting inappropriately in a relationship as a student on campus, a stubborn bitterness toward a spouse or anything else. Those are the outcomes of the great problem that God addresses to you and me here. Your unbelief by which you harden your heart and act as though God is for you instead of you are made for Him. And you reject His sovereignty and the worship of your life. God says, don't do it. I made it all. I made you. You're not going to win this argument. By the way, I love you. And I am good. Let me close with an illustration, kind of my favorite illustration of the gospel. Let's just say it's been a long day. If you're a student, perhaps you just got plowed on a major exam. Maybe if you're a husband or a wife, you've been arguing in business, your sale didn't go through, and you're wondering what next month's going to look like in the paycheck. If you're like me, I think chocolate and coffee can cover many sins and many struggles in your life. And so you, like me, might get in your car and drive to your favorite worship place where you can get caffeine, chocolate, sweet things all together. In my case, that would be Starbucks. So you drive to your favorite Starbucks and you're thinking, I'm going to get a venti gigantic with lots of whipped cream, java chip frappuccino, and it will cover a multitude of my struggles today. You drive there, you, get, you park your car, you get out, you're paying no attention. There's a delivery truck piling through the parking lot. Driver doesn't see you. You don't see him. You're like, I can't believe what's happened today. On the curb behind you is a father and his son. They see you. The father turns to his son and says, son, quickly, go and save him. Go and save her. The son rushes into the street and shoves you out of the way. The last thing you hear as he falls to the ground before the truck hits him is, I love you. The father walks to the body of his son and extends his hand through the blood. And he says to you, take my hand. So much have I loved you, I've given up my own for you. This is the story of our faith. You and I walk in a blindness unaware of the greatness of our God, of our great need for him, the hardness of our hearts. And the father turns to the son and says, son, take the hit for him take the penalty of his sin in the, in the form of that truck. And he walks into the road and he reaches through the broken body and the blood of his son and he says, I am the sovereign maker of heaven and earth. I didn't have to do this. I've chosen to do this because I love you. Do you think my greatest acts were creation? They are nothing compared to what I just did to the power of sin. Take my hand. Come, come, and worship and know me, the Lord, your God, your maker. I have opened a way through the blood of my Son, Jesus Christ. Come, men and women. Come, yield your heart to the true King of kings, Lord of lords, God above all gods, the one by whom and for whom you are made. Will you pray with me?